You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Fourteen years ago, Jeff Hertzberg and Zoe Francois brought upon the world the first artisan, the artisan bread in five minutes a day. This was a revolutionary book, and I have the author here with me today. His, their new book is The Best of Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day, Favorite Recipes from BreadIn5.com. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Thanks for having me, Rick. This is fantastic. It's great to hear from you again. Yeah. Now, I wanted to. One of the things that we I noticed in the be, very very beginning of the book, uh, you talk about how you guys pit how you in fact pitched the book originally by calling into an NPR talk show. So tell us about that. Yeah, my wife had been like a, a questioner on uh, the Splendid Table with Lynn Rosetta Casper. And um, after she did her question, it was about, I think it was about uh, some cake in one of Lynn's books. Uh, A producer called and said, hey, uh, if you know other people who are interested in calling in, uh, call in. They they do screen the questions, as you probably might have all guessed. Um, And she said, well, my husband maybe should call in because he's got this, uh, this harebrained idea for how to do bread. And he sort of wants to write a cookbook. So basically, I, I asked my question, I uh, pitched my my idea, and Lynn gave me great advice, which wasn't exactly how the book came about, but she gave me great advice, which was start writing for your local paper, which now, of course, would be get a blog, do a lot of online stuff, um, get an agent, and then hope you get lucky. And we got very lucky because an editor from St. Martin's Press, which is now which is part of Macmillan, heard this pitch I made to Lynn, which is very funny. It's on our website. Um, she said, it sounds like you're already selling the book. I said, well, there isn't a book yet, but yeah, I'm already selling the book. Um, and the, this editor called, asked for a proposal. I didn't do anything because I had a day job. Uh, and three years later, I met Zoe, and we decided to make the pitch together. And the rest is um, history. <laughs> you know, when I first got this book, my experience with bread making was not good. My mother had given me a bread machine and all I got out of it was stuff that was between the consistency of drying concrete and and plaster of Paris. It was not good. It was not good. And so when I saw this book saying that anybody could make bread in five minutes a day, I was young and starting out in, in NPR and they always said, well, what you want is some conflict, you know. You So I thought, well, here's a good thing. I can read this book, try to make the bread. It won't work because I just can't make bread. And, and then we'll have a good conversation about why I can't make bread. And that, <laughs> that, that was not the case. It was super easy. And i like you to talk about looking back over this over the long run. Uh, the the website that you created bread and pie has become quite important so talk about that in the blog and, and uh, you know convincing a nation of skeptics who, who thought you can't make bread i can't make bread yeah turning them into people who make bread all the time yep yep so the reason why most bread recipes fail is they take a certain amount of experience by the way i can't exactly explain why your bread machine recipes failed i know people aren't crazy about them the crust isn't great it's not like really good bread that you can do with with a with a with a freeform crust but i'm surprised that it was so dry but because my usual answer for why people get a doorstop that's dry and doesn't rise well is that the traditional recipe calls for a kind of experience that you're gonna need it and you're gonna add flour to your fingers and the dough surface until it feels silky in your hands. And the problem is it doesn't feel silky in your hands until inexperienced people have added way too much flour and they've handled it too much. And it's typically dry um, and it doesn't have any sourdough characteristic. It doesn't have any of the products of fermentation. 
because <clears throat> beginners will always use a, a dough that's made with, with, with you know, granulated yeast and you're going to use it today. So what, what, what my method did was say, this is the amount of water to use and don't need it because you're going to end up adding too much flour. And what I found through a lot of experimentation was that if you, if you made it wet enough, much wetter than the traditional dough recipe, but not so quite wet that you have to make it in a closed pan or it'll spread sideways, that you could store that dough. And that dough would develop flavor that begins to approximate sourdough. And with white dough, you can store it for 14 days in your refrigerator. And then you just bust off a piece, shape it very quickly. Don't use a lot of flour. Don't incorporate flour. And it, the key is the wet dough, but not too wet. That's what we tested with. And that's what distinguishes our method. I don't know of any other book method that suggests that you store the dough for anything longer than a day or two. But by storing it longer, if it's wet, again, if you store dry dough, typical dough, it won't retain rising power. If you store wet dough, you can get away with it. You still retain enough rising power, but it develops this flavor that's fantastic. It begins to approximate sourdough. Now, in this greatest hits book, The Best of Artists in Bread in Five Minutes a Day, um, we also included our recipe for true sourdough, but if truth be told, I think it was something that people did during the pandemic and it got stimulated a tremendous amount of interest in our books again, but it's a lot of work for people who are now back at work and commuting and dealing with kids or, you know, the worst is when I, when I talk to folks in my general age bracket, we're dealing with kids and elderly parents, you're not going to be feeding sourdough every day. It's too much work. But with our method, you can approximate that. And I think that's why it was successful. Now, hang on. There's a little, can you, okay. Whatever it was, just stopped. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, one of the things that this book truly did was I read a lot of books and, you know, they change the way you think and stuff. This book had an actual effect of changing my life in that, in, in substantive manner because a i became much more of a baker and b i have not bought a loaf of bread in years and, and my wife won't eat regular bread anymore yep. and so talk about just writing books that really change the way people live and eat that's a that's a big change in one's life so, so the reason why for most people, the traditional bread method is a fad. They'll do it for a while. Uh, my father-in-law did it in the 70s. He makes a good loaf of bread, but it's a lot of work. You dirty up a bunch of uh, bowls and a surface to knead on, and you gather the ingredients, and you clean up, and then you get exactly one loaf out of it. And so what, was, what really changed this is that you get multiple loaves. You get four pounds of dough. So if you that's four one-pound loaves. Or if you double it, that's eight one-pound loaves. And then you're just making that, just taking the piece of dough out every day if you need a pound of bread every day. Maybe you don't. Maybe you only need four or eight ounces. And then you just take out the, a roll size. And you let it sit on the counter for anywhere from 20 to 40 to 90 minutes, depending on the recipe. And just to stop right there and anticipate the question, when we say five minutes a day, we mean active time. So dividing all that prep time and cleanup time among four or eight loaves, that's what really changes it for busy people who don't have time to spend an hour on this hobby every day. You just, and especially if you do flatbread, you just take a little piece out, roll it out. You could do pizza or a flatbread right before dinner. No problem at all. It doesn't need any resting time. And actually to be truthful, that's what I usually make because I'm really busy. I have at least three different careers. Um, also, you'd asked about the uh, the website, and I, did, I forgot to answer it when I went on too long about the other thing. So breadin5.com, either Zoe or I will answer any bread question you have uh, related to our books. We're not a general resource. We'll ask you, what, what are you doing with our recipe? So we support the books through the website. We have Instagram also. That's breadin5. We have Facebook. That's breadin5. We have Twitter which isn't really used much for food anymore, but that's Artisan Bread in Five, numeral. Those were all with the numeral five. But the place we support with questions is on breadin5.com. And back in 2007, when we wrote our first book, I don't think any other cookbook authors were doing that. Now a lot of them are. They either support it through a website or 
Uh, as often as not, they're using Instagram because that's really hot right now. But we, we haven't committed to Instagram. We're doing it through the website. I, I appreciate that. Now, one of the things I think you mentioned flatbread, and one of the things I think that's nice about your recipes is, is it's easy to kind of improvise off of them. What I've been doing with the flatbread, I just, after all this time, I finally started making flatbread. After like years of cooking, I thought, oh, I'll try flatbread because I had made some kind of lentil dish and I wanted some bread to dip in it and I didn't have anything else and that seemed like it would be fast. Yeah. <clears throat> but what I did was um, I I took the, I had a, just a, a recipe of the master dough and I grabbed out some globs, you know, and, and what I did was I made a little bath of like a, two teaspoons of olive oil, a crushed garlic clove, and some parsley, and then I dip each of the little balls in in the that bath and roll it up, and then flatten that out. And man, the taste on that was incredible. And, and I like one of the things you do in this book that someone new is you give like uh, variations and different spins on the way to cook. So talk about that, and just about um, the idea of writing recipes that leave room for improvisation from the. The incompetent cook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think once you learn our method or bread in general, it's a little bit more like an art than a science. I think cake is a science. You can't mess with it. If the moisture is a little different or if you've tried to just add an ingredient, you're not going to get away with that the way you can with a forgiving dough recipe that will not be dry. If you if you use the amount of water we call for and you measure the flour the way we say, which, by the way, most people who bake now have a scale, and I recommend it. We also give uh, equivalencies in, in, in uh, English, well, I should say English-American, uh, and all volumes, but also weights, both pounds and grams. I recommend you use the scale, because there, then you can start improvising. So you, you get an idea of, with, for 1,000 uh, grams of white flour, all-purpose flour, our basic recipe if you do it in grams, a thousand grams of white flour, 750 grams of water. Um, and then you can start to improvise. You can see, you know what that consistency looks and feels like. That's what you're going for in all our recipes. Now you throw in some rye flour without even looking at the rye recipes. Um, and you see it's a little bit dry, it's a little bit sticky. So yeah, you just decrease the water a bit. You can do everything by the grams. You can either, uh, you can either increase the liquids, decrease the liquids, same for the flours. You can throw in seeds and nuts and see if that doesn't change. I mean, about a cup of seeds, nuts, or raisins or dried fruit won't really change much in a four-pound dough recipe, but it sure changes the effect. Um, and you don't, you don't necessarily need to go to a specific recipe for that. That's one of the things I think that is really fun with this book. So I, I mentioned it, you mentioned it. Let's talk a little bit about that master recipe, which is sure. so useful. Um, when you also mentioned something, too, that I, I want to highlight is uh, the scale. Yeah. When you get a scale, I got bought a scale to do this kind of cooking, but it's I use it for everything now. And weighing stuff in grams, you, you realize how inaccurate, like looking at a cup <laughs> Is it's crazy? I know. So um, we adopted different books that used volume for flour. Chose different methods. We chose the scoop and sweep method, mm -hmm. which means you take and we're on radio, so nobody sees what I'm doing. But if you take a one cup measure and you sort of drag it through, but don't push down on it. Drag it through a big bin of flour, and we recommend you don't use the bag because you can't do this easily from a bag. But if you get some sort of a bin or a way of holding flour, usually they make these plastic bins that are good. You can use crock crockery as well, and that doesn't seal, and you can get bugs in flour. Uh, but some, some of our readers don't like plastic, so we always sort of talk them through. You could put flour in jars, that's okay. By the way, don't put dough in a jar that you screw the top down or it can explode. And I had it happen. There's a picture in the book. Nobody got hurt. That's the good news. <laughs> um, so if you do scoop and sweep, if you want, if you don't have a scale, drag that cup measure through gently. Don't go straight down. Go at an angle. And then scoop it up toward you and then sweep across the top. The alternative method that some books used was called spoon and sweep. 
um, and you take it, you spoon it into the cup gently. That weighs a lighter cup. And depending on how you do ours, you can have variability. So if you have the scale, use it. If you don't have the scale, use scoop and sweep. And if it doesn't look like the dough consistency in our videos, which are on YouTube, actually, uh, YouTube bread in five, um, youtube.com forward slash bread in five, all one word with the numeral. Um, there are videos of what the dough should look like. It's much wetter than dough you're used to, and it sort of assumes the shape of the container it's in as it's aging in the refrigerator. So you mix it two hours on the counter if you used warm water, not hot, but lukewarm. If you use cold water, which some people advocate because it really helps slow things down and develop flavor, great, but it won't be ready to use in two hours. It won't be fully risen in two hours. It doesn't look fully risen, use it tomorrow. And the dirty dark secret of all our books is, hey, you're better off using it tomorrow because it'll develop flavor and whole structure that you won't have on day zero. Um, and for experienced bakers, especially sourdough bakers who've been disappointed with our method, it's because they're baking it on day one. To me, the ideal is somewhere between day three and day 12 for the white flour recipe. That's just a matter of taste. Though. Wow. That's a good that's a good way. To, you know, but I, one of the things also I, I remember talking about the first time that we talked, which is I have some nice uh, square bins to store the dough in my refrigerator and i have an entire refrigerator shelf that's dedicated to four bins of rotating bread dough um if you you don't have to wash those bins when you when you write a new have a new recipe in fact it gives it flavor it gives it that sourdough flavor and and some of my bins i haven't washed in longer than i can remember and, and i make delicious uh, master recipe dough. Yep. Yeah, the professionals call that, uh, sorry, this is the only French in the in the interview. They call it pâte fermentée, and it means the dough that's already fermented, and they intentionally add a lump. And you actually can do more than just leave the container with the dough. You can actually take a handful of dough from your previous batch. If you've left one too long that isn't rising well, you can use it as the basis for a new batch. And you start right away on day zero with a little bit of sourdough flavor that's going to be really appealing to most everybody. By the way, not everybody likes sourdough, but that's just a matter of taste. I love it. Um, the one caution I would say is uh, uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture says maybe don't do this with, with, with eggs or butter in the dough. Because if you happen to have contaminated eggs that have salmonella or likewise for the butter, you do want to wash those out each time. And most people, I think, don't particularly value sourdough in the enriched eggy stuff we do. Sorry about that noise. My computer did a, a reminder that I wish I knew how to shut off. Um, so, so don't do that for, for egg, for the brioche or the challah dough. Now, um, that brioche dough is deadly. That was the one time I had to stop making bread for a while because I was yeah. I would have, uh, you know, a recipe of brioche dough which makes incredibly delicious cinnamon rolls. It sure does. And, and that's again one of the great things about this dough is that you can when you have this on hand, you can spin it in a number of different ways. It doesn't have to be just bread. So talk about, you know, the other recipes you put in this book. There's a, it's not just recipes for making dough in these books. There's recipes for once the dough that call for a made bread batch of master or whatever kind of dough you're spinning off of and then will give us a recipe for a dessert or a more savory bread in, you know, starter. Right. So for me, I'm not a chef, so I'm lazy about this. I keep one or two kinds of dough in the fridge and I'll add things to it for variations. Like you can, you can roll it out. If it's not too old of a dough uh, early in its batch life, you can roll it out and throw in nuts or seeds or something sweet. You can sprinkle sugar on it and roll it up and make a log. I don't know what that's called, but then you slice it up and it's delicious after it bakes. But when I met Zoe in 2000 and let's see, 2003, it had been three years since I'd been on the Splendid Table on NPR. 
And I, this offer to send a book proposal was sitting out there and I was disappointed with myself that I never did anything. But, you know, I had kids. It was complicated. I had two kids at that time, by that time. And I told Zoe, we met taking care of our kids uh, in a music class. And I told, she asked, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a medical informaticist by day, but I like to bake. And I have a book offer. And I knew she was a pastry chef. And after we got to know each other, I said, would you work with me to write this book proposal? And we could be co-authors. And she said, I could do it on one condition. First, she had to try it and like it. And that worked out. Um, and she had the same experience you did. She didn't expect it to work, but it did. Um, and I said, well, would you write the book with me? It's sort of on a lark. But she is a chef, and she wanted to write a cookbook. She's a pastry chef, went to this Culinary Institute of America, did the pastry program there. Uh, and she said, I'll do it on one condition, and that is that there's a whole chapter in the book on sweetbreads, morning breads, brioche, challah, things with fruit and nuts, basically things that are desserty. So in all of our books, there's been at least, well, a generous chapter with brioche, with challah. And think of those two, think of brioche and challah as, um, challah is a, is a Jewish tradition made with eggs and butter, but not so much. And if you double all the eggs and butter and, and sweetener, well, the sweetener isn't doubled. Zoe doesn't have that sweet of a palate. So the flavors really come through without a lot of sugar. Um, but brioche has a lot of butter, a lot of butter, and uh, it's absolutely fantastic. They're sort of cousins of each other. She said, if there's a chapter with brioche, brioche and challah, and I want to do an almond bow stock cake out of that same dough, and I want to do cinnamon rolls, and I want to do... Um, the sunny side up. It looks like a sunny side up egg, but it's ap actually an apricot morning bread made with something sweet and buttery. When you make these, your house smells like a French bakery and anybody can do it. You will not fail with the wet dough. You won't dry it out. Things with eggs, believe it or not, are easy to dry out. The egg proteins kind of tighten. And what I've read is that they, I don't really know the chemistry. They squeeze the water out and it vaporizes and you can get an overly dry uh, egg-based bread with dry dough if you don't really know what you're doing ours is much more forgiving it's the the challah dough is fantastic and it's super it's wonderful for cinnamon rolls you know one of the things i have to admit about myself is that i'm very lazy me too <laughs> especially That's when it comes to cooking which is why i really like these these uh recipes and this whole way of making bread because once you it does it takes maybe a half an hour to put together almost any dough that's in this book and, and not not a lot of ingredients it's just a matter of you know having a couple of you know dedicated bins for weighing out the flour weighing out the water that's about it it's, it's right. very very simple so you got about a half hour to make the dough and then anytime you want a loaf of bread, it really is like takes five minutes to grab a piece of that dough out and shape it, rise it. Um, so talk about um, making a cookbook, you know, writing a cookbook that's kind of like dedicated to, in a sense, almost like not cooking, reducing the amount of time that you spend cooking. Yeah. So it, it is, I always joke that I'm lazy. I mean, I have three different careers, but I'm lazy. And I don't want to spend a huge amount of time doing this as much as I liked it. Um, you basically can subtract out some of the more laborious pieces of this, and you still have something fantastic. Most of us don't have time to behave like, like this was at the center of our life. And this is the main thing we're doing. But it really lets you do whatever you want with bread with hardly any time investment. Now, one of my favorite kinds of bread is that you make in here is pumpernickel. And, and it bakes up really nicely, very, very beautifully. Talk about adapting, like, you know, some of the ethnic recipes for the ethnic breads. Uh, the, the deli rye, the, the pumpernickel, those are really delicious. And the rye also is super easy to make, and it's tasty. Yep. So I grew up in New York City, and we had, in the 1960s and 70s, we had, I'm a baby boomer, don't tell anybody. Um, in the 60s and 70s, we had these little corner mom-and-pop bakeries. There were 
Jewish ones, there were Italian ones, there were some Greek, although I had less experience with that. And that was my touchstone for great bread. And it really did concentrate it. You could tell it was a sourdough. It was a sort of a wet dough. So that's what I had in my head when I moved to Minneapolis in 1987. And Minneapolis had a great bread tradition too, because you know it's the Mill City, a great flour and baking tradition. But the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, well, there was this great in invention, which we used to say, the what is it, the best invention since sliced bread in a plastic bag, which to me is the worst invention ever. The bakeries were starting to fade out. The sort of corner bakeries had already faded out in, in, in Minneapolis. And I came to Minneapolis for my medical residency because I'm a doctor. That's one of my, not, a, not, a, not seeing patients anymore, but that still is one of my day jobs to work in healthcare. And I didn't have any time. So was I lazy? Well, my way of blowing off steam is to come home and cook. And I was doing 80 hour, 100 hour weeks, staying up all night in the hospital. And I come home and my wife taught me the traditional bread recipe, the, the traditional method. And I said, I don't have time for this, but I do want this bread every day because you sort of can't buy it anymore. You, you sort of, it was changing in New York and it certainly changed in Minneapolis. And so the, the bread I wanted to replicate was this kind of deli rye that you get in the corner stores in New York when I was growing up. And, you know, rye flour is a little sticky. It behaves weirdly. If you try to knead a rye dough, and see, it's never all rye, by the way, no more than half because it doesn't have enough gluten. Um, people always add too much flour to that because rye is a sticky substance when it hits water, even though it doesn't have much gluten. Don't ask me the chemistry because I don't know it. And so I was able to recreate it. We had all these ways of getting up in the morning and exercising and having dough ready. Or I had a method for a while where I was freezing the dough, putting it on a pan in the oven, putting the oven on a timer. And it would, while we were still asleep, it was baking. And it, it works, but it's not as good as what I ultimately came to, which was to store the dough. Now, by the way, you can freeze the dough. That's another lazy approach. Uh, if you don't want to have, you know, four pounds of dough because you're a small household or you're single. So uh, I freeze the dough a lot now. And I'll tell you the truth for why. It's because I was eating too much bread when it was too <laughs> easy to when it was too easy to get it out of the fridge. I was having bread like three times a day. And I'm going to tell you as a doctor, if you're eating bread three times a day, you're probably eating too much bread, especially like I, it's the thing I can't resist. I was hacking off, I bake off a pound loaf for two people. And if one of the partners is hacking off pieces of bread all afternoon, I was a stay at home consultant and one or two days a week, I was home with my kids for a while. I was eating too much bread. So I stopped having the four pounds of dough laying around. But if you freeze it in one pound portions, you can take it out anytime you want. And most people aren't as weird with, you know, overeating bread as I am. But if you are, be careful with it and think about freezing the dough. Don't freeze the bread, though. That's not that. that it doesn't freeze that well. Freeze is okay. I'd rather freeze the dough. Yeah, that's a, the brioche was, was my problem. I'd just be making cinnamon rolls all the time. And I looked at the scale. I said, now you got to stop this, Rick. You got to put a stop to this. Yeah. Now I'm much more measured in my bread consumption, but nonetheless, having your own homemade bread around um, makes a big difference. You talked about sliced bread, yeah. which is really, which is true. Is it, uh, why, why, why? Why? Is because we were working too much and didn't have time. And it, you know, if you put dough conditioners and preservatives, even though you're slicing it, it's in a plastic bag. So the problem with slicing it is it dries out and it gets weird. But if you're using dough conditioner, conditioners and preservatives and then put it in the plastic bag, you can have this for days. It's very convenient. Uh, and basically, I found a way that was almost as convenient, but the bread is 100 times better. I just wouldn't eat bread from the supermarket that's sliced. Often it's kind of sweet, too, which I'm not looking for. I'm looking to decrease my simple carbohydrates as a baby boomer. Uh, and I did actually end up uh, doing a lot of testing for this book with our whole wheat formula. And the thing about this book is it's a little bit of everything from all of our books. So the white flour recipes, the ones people frequently make and come to the website with questions, uh, the whole grain with and without extra gluten, because then gluten got a bad rap and 
our, our whole grain book that was just whole grains for the whole book, we used a product called Vital Wheat Gluten, which, as you know, some people are concerned about. I'm not so concerned about it medically if you're not celiac. But I gave in this book ways to either add the extra gluten for a whole wheat loaf or don't add the extra gluten. You just adjust the water because gluten absorbs a lot of water. The gluten does give you a more open crumb structure with whole grain loaves. Personally, I don't care about that. I don't mind a slightly dense whole grain. Or My favorite loaf actually is, is a whole grain, whole wheat and rye loaf that's approximating the deli rye, but with whole wheat as the wheat flour background. Uh, that usually is what I make around here. I'll use it for everything. I'll use it for pizza, frankly. <laughs> You know, you talked about the whole wheat recipe. I just made some whole wheat bread, the 100% whole wheat bread with a vital wheat, with a vital wheat gluten. Uh huh. One of the things I noticed about the recipe is a little bit different. Is in general, many of the recipes have you, you know, I just heat up uh, like the three cups of water, on um, in a microwave for a minute, and then I pour that in my big my big bread making bin then i'll put in add the yeast and the salt to that and stir it up which is what you usually do but with the vita with the 100 wheat bread you add the um flour uh, first the flour, the flour and the uh, yeast together you stir them together which sure. is i thought was uh different uh, why do you do that Okay, so um, the traditional, first of all, the reason you're stirring up the dry ingredients with 100% whole wheat with vital wheat gluten is you have to, you can't put the vital wheat gluten right into water. It clumps. All right. And it makes little bits of, uh, you know, protein stuff. What's that Vietnamese um, protein made from vital wheat gluten? Wow. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you don't want that to happen. So you mix it with the flour. And once you're doing that, uh, you may as well do the yeast. Now, modern yeast can be mixed straight with the flour. You don't have to dissolve it in the water. And there's controversy around that. Here's why. Um, traditional recipes say if you throw yeast into salted water, that it shouldn't come into contact with the salty water um, directly without being sort of protected by the flour because salt inhibits yeast. Now, we have not found that with modern yeast, modern granulated yeast. For years, I was throwing the salt, salt the yeast and the water together. It's just going to be in contact for a couple seconds. Then the flour goes in. If people are worried, okay, the reason the 100% has you doing the dry ingredients that way is because it's of the vital wheat gluten. But while we were at it, we had you do the yeast. It sort of addressed traditional bakers. We've had so much experience with people writing in with questions. And over the years, you can do the yeast either way, in my opinion. You can't do the vital wheat gluten either way. It's got to go with the flour. Now, um, I have to say, too, that the 100% the wheat bread that I just made, that I have half a loaf here and I have a couple more to make, that's just so tasty, full of flavor. And I think part of the reason is that I went to a, a local yokel place uh called community grains but wow. I, I bought a 45 pound bag of, uh, of their special hard red winter wheat uh whole wheat and i think that what you learn rapidly when you're making flowers wheat is the flower matters i think it, it helps to get a good flower and by using uh by looking for you know different kinds of wheat uh flour especially the whole wheat flour you can get some incredibly tasty bread it just has a just an enormous amount of flavor yeah so we use an organic flour from a food co-op uh i once did an event here in minneapolis again we are the mill city and there's a local mill that mills freshly and they make the case that freshly milled flour um whole wheat especially has this sort of sweet flavor that you can get without adding sugar or honey. I mean, traditional American whole wheat has a little bit of, of shortening, either oil or butter, and it has a little bit of sugar, which does sort of tenderize a whole grain loaf. And for people who don't like whole grain, I do tell them to try that. But I, I bought this freshly milled, but it was commercially milled, 
whole wheat flour, and it's on our website. If you if you go on our website and go into the search bar and hit um, fresh ground flour, it'll go to the post I did. And all I can tell you is it tasted a little bit sweet, and it it had this incredible bright flavor that it's true I don't get with typical commercial wheat. Now it is really a lot more expensive than supermarket flour. And one of the things about our books is this is a really affordable hobby. We, we wanted our bread books to be the kind, it doesn't have to be a coffee table book. You don't have to have a custom kitchen. You don't have to have a lot of money. You don't have to have a lot of equipment. You could do it with the equipment you have in the house already. Although it's great to have a pizza stone and it's great to have a thermometer for the oven to make sure your, your temperature is on. But we didn't want it to, to advertise the notion that uh, if you make bread, that's a high end, very, very, you know, hoity toity, you gotta have a custom kitchen, not true at all. So I didn't want to be in the book saying you got to get the fresh ground flour. The other thing about fresh ground flour is people are buying these mills and they're getting wheat kernels from farmers locally. You can buy that. And people are coming on our website and asking about that. That's a different animal because the moisture content in the grains is going to determine how much water you need. So it tends to throw off our recipe. So if you're grinding your own wheat or rye, understand that the, these sort of ironclad quantities we gave for the hydration, for the amount of water, it may not hold depending on how dry the farmer allowed the grains to go. I think in a commercial environment, they sort of warm them for a while. So they have a very consistent moisture level, which is why commercial flour, including the fresh ground commercial, this local miller always does it the same way. It worked very well in our recipes with no adjustment. But people have come to the website and they have their own mills. They said, well, it doesn't work. It's too dry or it's too wet. And I said, okay, this is where, unlike everything else in our books, which says this is the amount of liquid you need. You don't have to improvise. You don't have to use judgment because it's for beginners who don't have that judgment of what it'll look like. This is where if you're grinding your own flour from, from grains, you're going to have to use judgment and you're better off learning our method with commercial flour so you get an idea of just how wet we mean or look at our video videos now uh let's talk about videos and and a little bit about uh, Zoe's show i yeah. mean the uh the environment for distributing videos has completely been transformed technologically in the time that this book was from the time the first book was oh, written yeah. to now i mean it's the, the it's incredible so i'd like you to talk about how the improvement in technology has changed the way you're able to communicate with your your bakers your reading audience yeah so we were very lucky we got into the cookbook business in 2007 which was the very end i think of 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 the traditional way of distributing recipes, which is, you know, there'd be newspaper articles, um, you pay for your newspaper, there'd be books and you pay for your news, uh, pay for your books. But we've gradually from 2007 on moved into an environment where people expect any kind of content to be free on the web. And that has come to include video content too. And what we have found, well, you know, how do you make a living producing recipe content and if everybody expects it to be free. So one way is we don't, we got in, I would say we established a market for our cookbooks of people who were already established in families, maybe in their late thirties, early forties uh, by 2007. And we have a fairly loyal group who prefers to get their recipes from a book. And my children who are in their twenties, they, they really are not intending to buy cookbooks when they establish households. They expect to get their recipes on the web. And Zoe and I have tried to sort of straddle those two worlds. So almost immediately, we were putting recipe content for free on breadin5.com. And it includes links to video, which is also free on YouTube. Uh, we've also got stuff on Instagram, although that's more complicated. We, we prefer to be on the website and Bread in 5, uh, Bread in 5's YouTube. Um, so it's a mix. Some of our content is free. If you want more and you want to hold something in your hand, which a lot of older readers really prefer, uh, baby boomers, the generation right after that, I think for a while, 
that generation is really going to prefer a paper book with big colored pictures. We have some colored pictures. We don't have a picture on every page for most of our books. For the holiday bread book, uh, which was all sweets, by the way, holiday uh, holiday and celebration bread in five minutes a day, has a book almost, has a picture almost on every page. Uh, most of our books have either 16, 32, or 42, 40 color pictures. Um, you can always come to the website if you want more. So all this video content and Instagram content is free. Uh, and I think that's how Zoe landed her TV show, which is called Zoe Bakes. One of her episodes covers our bread method, but mostly it's about sweets and cakes, things like that. It's on Magnolia and Discovery Plus right now, but it was just renewed for a second season. And I think in its second season, it's going to be on regular cable as well. So we're extremely excited that, that the way this market has worked is there's some free content you have to give people because the new generation does not accept that you have to pay for all this content. So people could just go on our website, but a lot of them end up buying our books, which is very exciting to us. And it ends up being a TV show for Zoe. I'm just going to shut that phone off. <laughs> now, uh, I have to say, I'm one of those people who likes to have books. I, my, my wife keeps thinking, saying, why do you need books? We have books everywhere else in the house. Why do we have to have them in the kitchen? And I say, because I cook from them and I need them like something usually every single day. And I think that having the, the book with the recipe right there makes it a lot easier to cook. And also, especially when you're doing this stuff, you want your bread to be pretty consistent. You don't, I mean, you don't want it to be all over the map. And having yep. the recipe there and taking it out every time prevents you from thinking you know what you're supposed to do and and then finding out the hard way that you didn't know what you were supposed to do. And the consequences with bread are a little more significant, especially this artisan bread, because it, you know, it, it, one recipe will last you. You know, I keep these things two to three weeks, and and it, it's uh, it's fine. And as you, for example, as the wheat bread runs down, as I get towards the end of the wheat bread, I'll just uh, lay out a sheet of it and cover it with cinnamon, cover it with uh, nuts and raisins, and make uh, you know raisin rolls out of it. Yep, you can do it with the white dough. Because all that caramelized sugar is going to sweeten up the dough, even though it doesn't have the butter. It won't be like a French pastry shop. But people started experimenting right away with using the plain dough. You could probably do it with whole wheat, although I haven't. I'm going to try that. Um, you know, as a doctor, I want people to eat more whole wheat and fewer simple carbs. Uh, it's a tough, that's an uphill battle, to be honest with you. Most Americans prefer white, white bread. Um, I look at our um, uh, I look at our white recipe as an entry drug to uh, as, a, as, a, as a gateway drug to the whole grains and the sort of healthier stuff because people will try it. The whole wheat bread is delicious. It's nothing like bad supermarket whole wheat or dry dry whole wheat. Absolutely. And one of the things that I've taken to doing is um, when I make these these whole wheat rolls. I make them, you know, essentially what I'm making is a, uh, like a cinnamon roll almost. But then when I cut the tube into the little bits of the roll-up tube of nuts and, and cinnamon in a layer, I, I take it and I mix each roll. I mix up, mix the cinnamon into the dough a little bit and push it through. And then you get, you don't have like that layer of cinnamon in a cinnamon roll, but you have a cinnamon flavor running through the whole wheat, and oh my God, it's just, you know, they spike each other. It's really delicious. That's a cool idea. It reminds me of the way you make focaccia. You stick your fingers in it, and the olive oil and the herbs penetrate down into the loaf. Now, so that focaccia bread is something I haven't made that much recently, but it's also super easy to make and really fun. So talk that, about that and the, yeah. uh, the fugas. Yeah, the fugace as well. So flatbreads are great because for a lazy or a rushed person. Um, <laughs> if, you make, if you make a big, tall loaf, you really should let it rest, our dough, 90 minutes. Our first book, we said you could get away with 40, but people wrote to us and said in a cold kitchen, making a big, tall loaf pan loaf, 
40 isn't enough. The crumb stays tight. It doesn't open up. So 90, but I don't have 90 minutes. Now, if you do a flatbread, either a plain flatbread like a pita bread, like a Middle Eastern pita, or a pizza, you roll it out, you stretch it out, uh, it could go right in the oven without any further rest from the refrigerator to the rolling pin on a board or a surface and into the oven. Uh, the focaccia is a little thicker than that. We usually say at least a 20 minute rest, but if you make it a thin focaccia, it takes less, less resting. The other thing about um, flatbreads is, well, we usually say for our loaf breads, don't eat them while they're hot because breads made from a wetter dough can seem gummy until they cool down. It's still cooking. This is less true with small rolls, things that are small or flat. Another reason why I like to make flatbread, I can eat it when it's warm and it won't be, it's never ever gummy ever, no matter what, even with the oldest dough. If you roll it really thin, paper thin, we have some instructions that are very clear for that on the website. You can make a cracker crust pizza or just crackers, frankly. Um, but you asked about some, oh, the, the fugace. So if you roll a, a, a dough out flat like a pizza, you can cut windows in that and then fold it over. It's hard to describe this for radio, but in our, our, our stuffed fugace, um, we put roasted red peppers on one side of the pizza, cut slits in the other side, fold it over. It's easiest to assemble this all on parchment paper, frankly, rather than trying to slide it off of a pizza peel. Um, so you're using olive oil, you're using roasted red peppers, and it's very beautiful. It, it, the roasted red peppers show through the windows. It's really festive. It's from, uh, it's Provençal. It's from Provence in France. Pretty easy to do. I would say until you get used to handling wet dough that you're rolling out, you got to use flour on the board and your fingers to keep it from sticking to everything because our stuff is wet. But I love that. that you, I used to say in interviews, that is my favorite bread. But the truth is, it takes a little more effort than I have time for it. I haven't made it in a while. You know, um, one thing I found a, a really easy way to roll things out flat is I use this. Uh, um, it, it's like they're kind of like cutting boards, but it's just like a real thin, flexible piece of uh, plastic. Yep. If you like put some flour down on the bottom, put the, your thing down on the, on the bottom, and then you put another one on, put flour on top of the uh, uh, roll, and then you can just press another one of those pieces of plastic down, and then you can just smooth it out. You can get a, a super thin crust without rolling at all. You just, wow. you just peel, put one on top of the other, and then you can just peel them apart. And or you can either use sometimes I'll spray it with a little olive oil and instead yeah. of flour, but either way you, that's a super easy way to get like a really thin crust. So so I I'm very interested in this. So are you using the silicone pads, the silicone? There's a French brand I can't remember the name. Or are you using these like they're they're super thin plastic cutting surfaces that they the cutting them? surfaces. Cutting okay. How do you keep how do you keep the dough from sticking to that? Um, the easiest way is I just spray a little canola oil on it. Okay. Just a very light spray of canola oil. It doesn't change the flavor, but it peels right off. Okay. And you can get, as I say, you can get it really thin without having to uh, roll it. And okay. And it's because my problem with the roller is it, it always sticks to the roller. And it's just, yeah, I'm, it's too messy. The, yeah, the, the it, it's just uh, laziness. <laughs> I, but I think that you know that that's uh, that that's important in you know when you're cooking is to do what's easy and fun, and and this makes it easy and fun. Exactly. I. Um... To me, cooking, not everybody feels this way. Cooking is the way I blow off steam at the end of the day, especially if it's been stressful. And this is part of it. This was my idea of cooking, was bread and pizza and things like it really energized me. I, I also cook, you know, the dinners too. And someday I kind of hope to write a book. This is in the back of my mind. I want to write a book that's sort of more health-oriented about making the whole meal. And my idea so you probably know, so a lot of people are gluten-free. By the way, there are gluten-free recipes in this book. Only a few, it's mostly wheat. So people shouldn't buy it if they're gluten-free entirely. 
This is for somebody who occasionally needs to cook gluten-free for a friend who can't eat wheat. So my concern is some people are gluten-free, some people are dairy-free, some people are whey-free, some people won't eat carbohydrates, in which case our bread books don't work for them. Um, some people won't eat meat. Some people are vegan. And if you start subtract, if if you were to decide, based on, to my mind, flimsy medical evidence, that all of those ap applied to you, it reminds me of somebody at uh, uh, one of our uh, book signings once who came up to Zoe as the pastry chef and said, "I want to make brioche, but I don't want to use." eggs or butter or I'm thinking what else does she not want to eat okay so after a while it's brioche made with just air so if all those categories apply to somebody there's really nothing left there are no food groups yet left so I someday want to write a cookbook that's the response to that that for people who are not sensitive to those things here's what I actually cook that's not bread uh, we eat some meat, not a lot. We're not we're not pure vegetarians or vegans, um, and I definitely still eat carbohydrates, but I sure don't binge on white refined carbohydrates anymore. And I used to, and it's definitely not healthy for baby boomers. You know, yeah, I, I that I I look forward to that. Uh, you know, a, a bread cooking for regular people, <laughs> just uh, I'm you know the the non fussy cookbook because. I, I just want something that that tastes good and, yeah. and I think that uh, it's easier to, it's a lot, also it's a lot easier to cook that way yeah yeah I mean yeah I mean if, if people have real health concerns around an ingredient and again people who cannot eat wheat our books aren't mostly for them except for the book we have a book that's entirely gluten-free it's called gluten-free artisan bread in five minutes a day and it came out I think it was 2018. Uh, this is actually the greatest hits book, The Best of Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day, is actually our eighth book in the United States. And we have translations of some of them in China, Japan, Germany, and a version in Great Britain. So translated into British English. Um, so we're incredibly excited. And, and we always thank people who uh, covered our books 13 years ago like you. And uh, really, it's been a sleeper hit. M most mainstream media has no idea about us. We were in the New York Times once, which I think gave us our start, but we've sold almost a million books of all of these editions. So a lot of people know about it, but it's not a huge, huge it's, it's not a household name, but that's just fine with us. I've been speaking with Jeff Hertzberg. His book is The Best of Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day, featuring recipes from breadin5.com. You co-wrote it with Zoe Francois. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Thanks, Rick. This is fantastic. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.